I am uh, exceedingly jealous of one of my pastor friends uh, in the last couple of weeks. His name is Mark Steckel. He is uh, this fellow right here in the middle. He is uh, a pastor in Pennsylvania. He used to pastor out here, and then he worked at the school that I'm going to. And He's pastoring in Pennsylvania, and he's uh, been a volunteer firefighter, EMT, works on an ambulance company for a number of years. And uh, there, you know, his church is out in the middle of Pennsylvania somewhere, but they, they brought in um, ambulance crews to back up the city of Philadelphia when the Pope came to visit because they, had, they, did, a, they did a full-on head of state uh, security thing, you know, uh, the way the world is now, you can't uh, take anything for granted. So... He got to see the Pope that far away. That's not why I'm jealous of him, though, <laughs> I've got to tell you. Um, I'm just jealous of him because he got to hang out with all those uh, firefighter, EMT, police-type people for a week in Philadelphia and uh, had a great time. I, I have a lot of great memories of those days. Uh, it was fun to, uh, to uh, work in those ways and a lot of, uh, had a lot of great uh, relationships we all have things that we love to do. Uh, you know, some people love to play a certain sport. I read about uh, somebody on the Ferndale football team who says he just loves football. He's quit doing other things because he loves football so much. And he's going to study sports in college and he you know, hopes to have a job in football somewhere someday. We all have things that we love to do. And then there are things that we need to do. And that's true in life, and it's also true in ministry. In the last few weeks, we have been studying what God says about our church and what our church is supposed to be. And some of those things are fun and easy and natural, and some of them take some work, and some of them are kind of half and half. And we come to one of those today, we'll get to it just in just a minute, from uh, Acts chapter 2 where I'm going to read a little bit and review just a little bit before we get to that characteristic of the church that we're going to study today. In Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. The 120 disciples were all with one accord in one place, as Jesus told them. He said, Go there and wait. And uh, I don't think they had really understood what was about to happen. Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. An expanded translation of that would be like this. Because of the day of Pentecost, there were all of these people in Jerusalem. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, looking at one another, saying, Look, are not all of these who speak from Galilee? How is it that we hear in our own language in which we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. He goes on to preach a sermon about Christ. And he explained to them the nature of what was going on with the speaking in tongues, which was prophesied from the Old Testament. It was God's divine way of getting people's attention and confirming to them that something divine was about to happen. In the Old Testament, God created 
a, a pattern, a system, a law that said if a man has a message from God and he comes to you and says he has a message from God, he will have a sign or a miracle that proves he is from God. And so God gave this miracle of the speaking in tongues to prove that what was about to be said was of a divine nature. It wasn't just something Peter thought up on his own. And so all of this speaking in language, all of these different languages, at least 16 different nations were represented there. And, and here it says every nation on earth, we might call that the whole civilized world. In other words, everyone who could possibly travel to Jerusalem within a, a range there had come. They speak in tongues and Peter stands up and preaches and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And that gives us our first characteristic of the church that we studied several weeks ago. The church is to be a curiosity, something that makes people want to ask a question and find out what's going on. Catherine told us today about having English classes in Thailand. When you give away something for free in a foreign country, people say, what's going on? For that matter, in this country, when you try to give away something for free, you know, you see those people down on the street sometimes handing out bottles of water, and you're thinking, what are they up to? And you drive right by because you think, ooh, that's creepy. I'm not going to take that bottle of water from that stranger. But in Thailand, they'll come to an English class with a stranger because they're so hungry to learn English, and they say, what's going on here? And eventually, there's an opportunity to say, well, let me tell you why I'm here in Thailand. We're supposed to be a curiosity to the people around here. Somehow, something we do in our personal life or in our corporate life should speak to people so that they go, what's going on there? Uh, hopefully, people will notice all the work we've done on the building, and maybe that will generate some interest. We don't know. But on October 31st, if you've never been to our parking lot party, you at least need to come and see the spectacle that it is. Okay, we line up cars all in a, all in a pattern out there, and we open the trunk, and there's a competition to decorate. And uh, some people don't apparently have anything else to do except create this magnificent decoration for their car. Others of us are busy. We don't have time for that kind of foolishness. <laughs> Just saying. So we make this little meager attempt. We open up our trunk, we sit there, we talk to kids and their families as they go by and give them candy, and probably a thousand people or more come through our parking lot in two hours, okay? And we give them some gospel information, we give them some church information, and we give them some food, and we play them some Christian music, and hopefully, by God's grace, somebody will go, wow, what's going on here? Um, we're supposed to be a curiosity. You're supposed to live your life in a way so that people will say, why do you live that way? You know, it's, it's a good thing, but I'm, I'm curious about it. Number two, the church is to be an incubator. An incubator as in we are supposed to be a place where somebody can talk about their questions of faith and doctrine and Christianity and the world. They can hear God's truth. We can demonstrate God's love. And for those people whom God is drawing to himself, we know that many people here, like Thailand, are extremely disinterested in the gospel. But there are some people who God is awakening. And, and they may stumble into church going, I wonder what's going on here. And this needs to be an incubator. We, when we see somebody in church for the first time, let me just say we ought to be on our very best behavior. And what I mean by that, we're going to talk about that a little bit later today when I get to today's point, but we need to be reaching out and caring and trying to be encouraging and uh, see how we can help people move along in their faith. The church is to be a hospital. We don't reject people because they are struggling in life. Okay? Um, I, I don't like to use the word sickness because in our secular world, we have come to define every sinful act as the result of a mental illness. 
i.e., a young man who walks in to a classroom and says, are you a Christian? Folks, the sickness there is sin. That's all it is. And if that guy didn't die and he walked into our church, would we love him to Jesus? Ooh, Pastor Dave, now you're stretching me a little bit. Yeah. For those of you that are new, I've spent the last 20 plus years of my life hanging out with police officers. I'm a, I'm a fan of the police world. Some of you aren't. Some of you are on the fence. What if they walked in? They aren't perfect, I know that. Would we love them? We all have people that we struggle with. We have to be a hospital for those with the sickness of sin, no matter what it looks like on them. We have to be that place, and we have to put ourselves aside and care for them and see if the Lord won't save them and change their lives. Church is to be a seminary. That is a place that teaches God's truth clearly and plainly, because that is how people grow up in Christ. Your life cannot become more like God without God's truth. You can't get it completely by osmosis. I'll, give, I'll grant that you can hang around with Christian people and watch them and learn how to live. I'll give you that much. But the specifics of you really growing and getting your mind and heart and life squared away come from God's word. That's why we have to teach that. A couple of weeks ago, we studied this. The church is to be a temple. That is a place of worship. We did that today. We worship through music, through prayer, through God's word, through the Lord's Supper, all things that God has told us to do. We worship God today and also our learning and our applying of God's truth is an act of worship and God willing, that will be going on now and when we leave this place. All of these priorities are based in this passage, the greater passage of Acts chapter 2, which I'd encourage you to read several times. Read it every day this week and just get familiar. But the last section really summarizes the beginning of the church. Look at Acts 2, starting in verse 40. What we read in verse 40, when it says, with many other words he testified, that tells us that Acts chapter 2 is a summary of, of the sermon that, pre, that Peter preached. Perhaps Luke was taking notes, and this is the summary of it. It's all of the critical points. Maybe it's all the main points, but not all of the, the other information. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word. That's a synonym for saying they believed what was said. They agreed with it. The essence of faith is to completely agree with what God says about you, about Christ, about the world, to say, yes, you are right. I agree with you. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It was a seminary. And fellowship, we're going to talk about that in a minute. The breaking of bread and prayers, the worship. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church is to be a family. Look at uh, Acts 2.42. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The word fellowship, the basic meaning, is partnership or sharing. Partnership or sharing. The English word fellowship comes literally from fellows in a ship. And the idea is 
when, you know, if, if, if this was a boat and there was half a dozen of us in this boat, we're all together in one thing. We're all going, whatever direction the boat is going, we're all going that direction together. We are in this together. God makes it clear that all who believe in Christ as Savior are connected to one another in the body of Christ. And that's why fellowship is based on unchanging relationship. Romans 12 says this, for as we have many members or many individual people in one body of Christ, but all the members do not have the same function. This is gonna go on to talk about spiritual gifts. So we, (coughs) being many, are one body in Christ and individually, get this, members of one another. It's the way that God has chosen to say, I need that water, please. It's the way that God has chosen to say we are all connected. Um, That's enough. That's enough, thanks. We are all connected. We are family. Ah, you listen to that wicked music, don't you? (laughs) 30, 40 years ago, yeah, I see, right? (laughs) (coughs) Paul said it this way in Ephesians, Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth. Why? Because we're members of one another. You You don't lie to your own family. That's what he's saying. Be devoted, oh, let's back that up. We are all members one of another. We are connected to one another, and God commands us to live that out. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This, the command and, and the thinking you need to have is parallel to the, to the idea in Romans 6. When In Romans 6, he talks about the spiritual reality that when you believe in Christ as Savior, you are so inter, um, connected to Christ that it is as though you died on the cross with him, your sinful nature is crucified, and you're raised to a newness of life. And he speaks that great truth in the first 11 verses, and in, or verse 10 verses, and in verse 11 he says, Now, decide that it is so, and live that way. You see, I know that my sin nature was crucified. I know it can't control me, but will I choose to say no to sin based on the power that God has given me? There's a parallel concept here of the spiritual reality and the practical outworking in fellowship. This passage here literally uses the same word for family twice. And it it says something like, in your family commitment, Act in family love. You are connected to one another in the body of Christ. If you have believed in Christ, you are part of the family. Not only part of this family, but the whole family of all believers of all time, the whole body of Christ. But the question is, will you live as though there is a family commitment? Will you live as though you are connected or will you somehow try to to isolate yourself away and say, well, yeah, that's the church out there. I I just don't want to get mixed up in that. God says, don't do it. God says, you are connected. Now live that commitment out. God uses the concept of family to illustrate the care we are to have for one another a care based on unchanging relationship. I want to be real honest with you today. Do you know what American Christians do when the relationship gets just a little tough in the family? They run to the next church where the family is perfect. Can't do that in Thailand. Wouldn't that be something if this was the only evangelical church 
in a hundred miles. Oh, I guess I'll just have to work things out. Glory. As the great philosopher Tim Allen said, Christmas isn't about being with the ones you love, it's about being with your family. <laughs> we all know that we've got about two or three categories of relationships in our life. And the category we love, and by love I mean we just really enjoy it a lot, is the category of relationship when there's somebody that we just naturally fall in with. We kind of think the same way, we laugh at the same things, uh, our priorities are kind of the same, we have some commonalities in our life experience, you know, maybe we're, you know, my age and serving the Lord. And, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons I, go, I enjoy going to China is because I go with my friend, who I won't name, since this will be played on the internet. You know, he and I just have a great time. We laugh. We walk down the street and talk about things, and we laugh, you know, and have a great time. And we come in and teach the Word, and we're, we're drilling in the same stuff, and, and, and our heart's in the same place, and our, our laugh's in the same place. And... and you know, if you said to me, he's going to be at this certain restaurant at, 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 one, at uh, 12 o'clock, I'd say, well, he'll only have to wait for me for about a half an hour. <laughs> but I'd go there. Boom. It's a natural, easy relationship. I have those relationships with other pastors and, and my wife and I with other pastor wives. And we go to the pastors and wives retreat at Cannon Beach. And not all of them. But some of them, we just fall in with like we've never been apart. And we love those kind of relationships. You love those kind of relationships. The problem is, we come to define that as the only kind of relationship we're interested in. And if we only care for those who we easily and naturally get along with, we have become, like Jesus said, no better than a self-loving Pharisee. We must be committed to one another in the body of Christ in a way that it transcends natural affection. If the only people I'm going to love are the ones that are easy to love, I'm going to have an easy life. But you see, the reason I use the word family today is this. We all have human family members that are a little tough. And we have some that are just a joy to be with. One of my nephews uh, just emailed and said, they're gonna come visit next spring. Lord willing, you'll get to meet them. I, I expect to have a wonderful time with him and his wife and baby. His brother, not so much so. Okay. We all know that. We can look in our family and say, yeah, I'd love to have these come visit. I hope these don't stay too long. <laughs> and that's why I've used this illustration for the word to put in your mind. We are family. And I haven't rejected that nephew. And I pray for him regularly. And if I had a chance, I would treat him, if we lived in the same area, I would treat him the way that I'm going to talk about today. Our relationship cannot be just based on natural affection. It's wonderful if it comes, but it's got to be more than that. The people in Philippi, they had some problems getting along. Remember the two women, Yodia and Syntyche? Um, what's the, it's uh, fragrance, and uh, the names meant fragrance, and uh, you know, happy chance, or something like that. And those two women were having such a, such a problem getting along, they got named in Scripture. You don't want that to happen. <laughs> I want to be John the Baptist, not Yodia. You know? But this is what Paul wrote to them. Keep that in mind. Here's at least two women in the church not getting along, and here's what Paul writes to them. If, and that word if, that condition in the Greek language means if, and I'm assuming it's true, if there is any consolation or any comfort in Christ, 
if any comfort of love, any fellowship, any relationship of the Spirit, if that is true, if there is affection and mercy, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. The Apostle Paul says, are you connected in the Spirit? Yes. Then live it out by caring for other people. What does this kind of fellowship, family, look like in action? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. This kind of fellowship means we don't let family suffer alone. Acts 2, 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as any had need. Whoa. You know, every so often, (laughs) every so often somebody in the Christian world says, I'm going to start a church just like the church in the book of Acts, not like all this terrible organized religion that the evangelicals have. We're going to have a real Acts 1 church. I'd just like to say to them, are you going to sell everything you have and just freely give it away to everybody who walks in the door if they have a need? Uh, Maybe not quite just like the book of Acts. These people were so excited about Christ, they just said, Hey, do you, do you, are you poor? Do you have a need? Here, I got something that I don't need. I'm going to sell it. I've started selling some of those things that I don't need on eBay. Sold one this week. Boy, what a thrill of victory that is. Not on eBay. Uh, Craigslist. Craigslist, yeah. Yeah, I went down to Hagen, met somebody, got some money, gave him the goods, didn't get killed, you know, or anything like that. <laughs> These people said... If I have stuff I don't need, I can sell it and I can help people that have a need. That is the kind of relationship that we need to have. I don't believe, and you can search the scriptures and try to understand the tone of what God says. God doesn't say we have to be poor to be Christians. He doesn't say we have to sell everything. But he does say we have to love one another. That's why we have a benevolent fund. It's one of the ways we help one another. You know, and, and frankly, we don't talk about it every time we have the Lord's Supper, but our, our plan is to have an offering uh, receptacle out in the welcome room and in the foyer, and, and for you to give an extra offering as you leave, and we collect that money, and, and you will never hear where that money goes unless you specifically want to ask me. I, I might be able to tell you some things, but when we find out somebody's got a need, I get to write a check. We get to send some money and help them out. That's one of the ways we help. Occasionally, the needs are so big, we'll stand in front of you and say, one of our people has a big need. I remember one time we did that, somebody had a medical need, and I think we gave $1,500 to help them. Now, that's not the whole way we live this out, but it's one of the ways we live this out. We need to have a, a thing tucked away in the back of our head that says, If I find out somebody in church has a need, I need to consider, could I meet that need, or could I get some people together to meet that need? When Sue and I visited the Thornbergs, who were here just a few weeks ago, uh, they minister in Madrid, Spain, and we had a chance to visit them many years ago. One of the days um, when they were doing something else, one of their church members drove us around to some, some tourist sites or something like that, and he taught us some Spanish phrases. One of them that I've used ever since is one of my favorites, es tu problema. <laughs> and it, me- <laughs> it means, it is your problem. <laughs> es tu problema. You see, what God is telling us here is we should never think that way or speak that way when somebody has a need in the body of Christ. We need to say, no, it's, it's family. Um, you know, if my kids were to call up and say I have a need, and, and occasionally they do, not very often, but I don't say, es tu problema. No, their problem is my problem. I, my only problem is I haven't been able to help them like I would like to. We have to care. Family doesn't push them away 
Family doesn't, family says, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna care, I'm gonna do what I can. And sometimes that's with physical things and sometimes that's with spiritual things. Fellowship means that we don't let family suffer alone. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great affliction and the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. These Christians in Macedonia said, those poor Jews down, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are suffering. We've got to take an offering. And Paul says they were already impoverished when they took the offering. But they did it anyway. Fellowship means we don't let family suffer alone. Number three, fellowship means we don't let family drown in sin. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, that's another word for sin if you don't know, means to step across the line of godliness, from godliness to ungodliness. If a man is overtaken in a sin, the sin has come on to him and he, you know, he stepped in and then it just took over and he couldn't help himself. He can't get out of it. He's wallowing in the sin. He's stuck in there. You who are spiritual, didn't say you who are perfect. What he said was you who haven't stepped over the line, you who are walking with the Lord consistently, you restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I don't know how many of you have ever done this, have ever done what that says. Sometimes it goes very well and sometimes it goes very hard. If you can look at somebody drowning in sin and just think, that's too problema, then your heart needs to grow. And you need to think of family. When we lived in Boardman, Oregon, there was a swimming place. The city, I think, had built it on the side of the Columbia River. It, it would be like this right here, carved out, and, and so it, it was shaped like a bowl, and it went down from all sides. And, and uh, my son was about four, maybe five years old. He didn't know how to swim. We came, and, and he walked in here and started walking across, going across to the other side, but he didn't know that it wasn't going to be level across there. It was going down like this, and with every step... It literally is like that. And I, you know, I looked out there and it was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, right before he went down. And you'd expect no less, right? I mean, can you, it's just stupid to even say it. Can you imagine the father standing here going, well, I guess he's going to learn about swimming. That's wicked. No. When we see somebody drowning in sin, as hard as it is, as hard as it is, we've got to go and, according to this verse, in a gentle way, in a kind way, in a gracious way, try to intervene because we're family. Number four, fellowship doesn't let family believe false doctrine. Fellowship doesn't le let family believe false doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul gave Timothy his prime instructions at strengthening the church in Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to Timothy, a true son of the faith, as I urged you when I left Ephesus and went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment, the reason the apostle Paul said, Timothy, tell people not to teach and believe false doctrine. The purpose of the commandment is love 
from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Now, why is right doctrine so important? This is why. God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ, which comes in God's word, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises in God's word, that through these you can partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. The reason right doctrine is important is because only right doctrine liberates people from sin and enables Christ-likeness. Do you want your friends, your associates, your family members to be like Christ? This is the only path. And so we have to care about doctrine. We have to care about doctrine. Fellowship works with others. Right doctrine is important because it's the only path to joy and peace of Christ. The only path is obedience. Number five, fellowship works with others to solve problems. Turn with me to Acts chapter six. Acts chapter six. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, they started with 3,000 and the number was multiplying, not adding. Wow, we have no idea how many there really were. There arose a complaint against the Jews by the Greeks because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. People sold what they had, gave the money to the church, and the church held it and gave out social welfare. Here it's called the daily distribution for the widows. Okay? And some of the widows seemed to be getting neglected. Then the twelve summoned the multitude, the apostles who were then, at that point, the only leaders of the church. No elders had grown up yet. The twelve summoned the multitude, the congregation of the disciples, and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, one alternative solution is, okay, we're going to stop preaching, and we're going to make sure all of this gets handed out evenly. And he said, that's not a good solution. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, and so on, these different men. Verse 6, when they set them before the apostles, they prayed, they laid hands on them, then the word of God spread, the number of disciples multiplied greatly. The lesson here is very simple. First of all, you need to imagine the deep divide between the Greeks and the Jews coming out of their secular life into Christianity. The, 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 best, the best example of that I can think of today is a man who is a missionary that I know who works in a country where people come to Christ from multiple different backgrounds, like from a Muslim background or from a, a different kind of false Christian background. They come from all these backgrounds, different tribes and groups, and they come together, and he's trying to bring these pastors together to teach them how to be pastors, and they don't like one another. Okay, why not? Because of their backgrounds and because they haven't grown up in Christ yet enough to realize, hey, uh, I'm not going to look at any man in the flesh anymore. I'm going to look at him according to Christ you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So here's the Jews and the Greeks, and as soon as something doesn't work perfectly, they go, it's because you're a Jew. It's because you're a Greek. And boom, sides are chosen and arguments are made. And the reality is maybe somebody just wasn't paying attention. Okay? But here's the thing you need to understand. They had a problem that needed resolution, a genuine problem. They had leaders who led. That's what God intends. They had church members who followed and worked together in the process of resolution. And there was a group decision made that enabled better ministry. And no one left the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem when they had a sticky problem to fix. 
They worked together to find a solution, and then they went forward. And that's what family does. Now, I know in human families, it's real easy these days to get a divorce. Irreconcilable differences. Okay? And we've come to accept that. I haven't. But our society, well, you know, that's the way it is. Can you imagine if we applied that to the rest of our family relationships? Oh, I can think of two or three relatives with whom I have irreconcilable differences because they have chosen lifestyles that are absolutely ungodly. And when I even nudge, just little teeny nudge in Facebook about it, what I got back was irreconcilable differences. You are dead to me. No, we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because we constantly hope for better for our family members. I pray for that family member. I pray that the lifestyle issues will be resolved and that Christianity will become strong in that person. I don't give up. Fellowship works with others to solve problems. Fellowship always has room for improvement. This is really important. Boy, this is so important. In Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica today, you can look on the map, it's called, they call it Thessaloniki in Greece today. The church at Thessalonica apparently was a, as an exceptional church. You know, the Galatian church was kind of exceptional with problems. The Corinthian church, more exceptional with problems. But the Thessalonians appeared to have been kind of exceptional in a positive way. <clears throat> and one example of that is, is what Paul said about their love. But concerning brotherly love, that's the, the same word we're working on, the same concept we're working on today. Fellowship, family, the word brotherly love in the scripture. You, you have no need that I write to you. You don't need me to exhort you about brotherly love. That means they were really doing good with their family relationship at church. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren in your surrounding area. But we urge you, what? That you sit on your hands and say, we are there. No, that you increase more and more. In other words... Until we see Christ, we just aren't as perfect as we ought to be. There's always room for improvement. Paul talked about his own life that way. And I have not already attained, I have not perfected, but I press on that I may hold, take hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. I do not count myself have already arrived at perfection. I forget the things that are behind. I keep reaching forward to do better to do better. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. No matter where you're at in, in living out your family relationship today, there is room for improvement and there is need for improvement. I learned this week from somebody that I failed them in my family commitment in the church. It makes me sad and, God willing, I'll do better next time. I'm not perfect in living this out. I know that. We all need to have this mindset of the Apostle Paul to say, God help me to do better. God help me to love more. God help me to love some kinds of people that I've struggled to love. God help me um, to, uh, to care for these greater needs, to develop skills in fellowship. Some folks are not naturally outgoing. It's tough to carry a conversation. God knows that. He still wants you to have a family relationship at church. God help us to mentor young believers. Um, There's two more, and I'm going to get through them quickly. I'm just going to give you a scripture reference. We're not going to turn there, but the scripture reference is this. 1 John 3, 14 to 19. And the point is here. Whoops. 
Fellowship is a prime indicator of genuine Christianity. In 1 John, you'll remember the words, if you cannot love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? And he talks about that at length throughout the book of 1 John, and he says, this is the way that we know we've passed from death unto life if we have love for the brothers. This is the way that we know we've passed from death to life. That's a synonym for saying, how do I know I'm really a Christian? Well, one of the ways you will know that you are really a Christian is if you take your family relationship seriously. If you work at caring for others in the body of Christ, our commitment to one another is a prime indicator that Christ is at work in us transforming this, transforming us. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wow. And the last point is this. Fellowship isn't the goal, it's a means to the goal. See, we have two or three excesses we fall into at church. One of the excesses I talked about earlier, and that is we love the people that, we, that it's easy to love. And another of the excesses is we think fellowship is all about us finding a best friend. And we forget that fellowship is not the goal of the church ministry. It is a means to the goal. Here's the goal of the ministry of the church. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. The word disciple is used a number of times in the New Testament. It's based on some of the words in this text. And that's the word we like to use a lot. We're in the business of making disciples. Now we know, when I say that, I know that only God can save somebody. I know only God can transform somebody. But I also know that God only works through me and through us. And so this is our job. Having a parking lot party is not the goal. Getting a thousand people there is not the goal. Passing out literature is not the goal. Getting known in the community is not the goal. Making disciples is the goal. We have a welcome room. And God willing, we'll have the Hughes brothers serving us with a towel. I tell you what, I will pay for his tux rental. I'm calling you out, buddy. <laughs> Do you know that we don't have a welcome room to keep you from passing out between here and the restaurant? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so famished. Pastor Davis preached so long. If I don't get a cookie in, in like two seconds, I'm going to die. <laughs> I know that's how the children think. That's not why we have the welcome room. You know why we have the welcome room? So that you'll hang around. There's an excuse to hang around. And if you are starving, by all means, get in the front of the line. We want you to hang around so we can get connected, but that's not the goal. The goal is making disciples. The goal is helping you to grow up in Christ. The goal is for there to be time for us to talk to one another and maybe in some of that talk there will be something significant and we'll be able to influence one another for Christ or, or make an appointment to, to get together later in the week to, to enjoy one another and to encourage one another. The goal is making disciples. And fellowship is one of the important things that helps us to do that. It's wonderful if you can have a best friend at church. That's really great. But then you've got a new temptation. And the temptation is you just want to hang with your best friend all the time. 
And what really ought to happen is you and your best friend ought to reach out and find a couple of other people and love them for Jesus. Fellowship's not the goal. It's a means to the goal. You know, we do a number of things to help you fellowship. Next week, we're going to have Name Tag Sunday. If I hear one complaint, I'm going to make you go in my office and listen to this sermon again. <laughs> on the recording. I'm not going to speak it to you. I'm going to put it on the recording. Okay? There's a reason for that. And I, this morning, I said to somebody, what's those people's names? Okay? You know why it's important to know somebody's name? Because it's a lot nicer than saying, hey, no, you, you I'm talking to you. <laughs> we have name tag Sunday for that. We have directories, and I believe we've run out, and uh, we'll print some more of those this week, and uh, have pictures in there. Some of you didn't put a picture in the directory. Shame on you. Let us know you, okay? And if you didn't put a picture in, there's always time because before Joanna prints those on Tuesday, you can give her a picture, boom, she'll put it in there. We have marvelous technology here. We're, we're like the Microsoft of Ferndale here. <laughs> we have directories. Every month we put out a prayer list, which is a little broader than the directory because it's got everybody that possibly says they're part of our church. So you can read the names and pray for the names. We put out an anniversary and birthday list so you can go, oh, I met that person last week and it's their birthday this week. You don't have to give everybody a birthday card. We're just trying to do a few things to facilitate connection. But you've got to step up in and say, God help me to take my family seriously. Our society is in crisis. Did I need to tell you that? This last week, we just saw it all over again. And boy, if, if that fellow really did kill those folks because they're Christians, if he's angry at Christians and he took it out like that, we're in trouble. But you know what? We're not in as much trouble as he is because I'm pretty certain, I, I think I know where he landed after he took his own life. And I'm not being judgmental, I'm just looking at the outside of his life. We have the solution. We have the solution. And our fellowship is gonna be one of those things that becomes a curiosity to people so that they will go, wow, those people are different and it's good. Live out your family life. Ask God to help you. Find some new ways to do some new things in the family this week. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us here together to this body of believers today. Use us. We do have room for improvement uh, by your grace, we are friendly. We have wonderful people to greet in the parking lot. That's a great thing. But like the Thessalonians, we've got room for improvement. Help us to do that this week. I pray in Christ's name, amen.